Episode 21, Fina McDonald. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. And welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am, of course, your host, Michael Cruz, here on The Title Block. And uh, this week I interview, uh, I bring to you an interview I did in the summer with Props Master uh, and the, one of the founders of the Rabbit's Choice Prop Shop. That's right, Fina McDonald. She is also a silver ticket winner from the Dora Maver Moore Awards this summer, so we'll have a chat about that right at the end. But first we talk about her life, uh, her, the, the, her early life, which included some, uh, some acting jobs and performance. In fact, some seminal work there on The Farm Show, which, uh, which is a really interesting conversation. Uh, I do have to remind you that uh, this, of course, uh, show is supported by uh, patrons on the Patreon network so if you go to patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast uh you'll be able to find our patreon page and i uh, i urge you if you like the show please support it um there's only about four supporters right now so it's not very many people but that's okay uh, i'm sure you guys can do it just a couple bucks an episode will be great it give me an incentive to actually get more episodes out a month uh, speaking of which i know that i've been very very busy this fall uh, and unable to make the time um before today to get the episode out uh some a couple weeks late sorry about that of course the patreon subscribers got their episode about a month about a week ago uh and so they've already enjoyed and know what's going on in this podcast so if you want to be part of that group just go to patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast uh and again please tell your friends about this i know that a lot of you listeners are from are currently in university uh studying theater at that level that's the audience we're kind of focused on uh or you're in the industry and want to know more about the people that you work with uh and about the theater history the rife the um the sort of uh uh, rich theater history we have here in Canada. So thank you very much for your support. Please tell your friends about it. If uh, if you like the show, certainly uh, go to Facebook. Uh, we're at Facebook forward slash the Title Block uh, Podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Title Block CA. That's at the Title Block CA, capital C, capital A. And remember remember to go to the website because we have show notes there. I go through the show and I uh, I, I pick up links on the web uh, on the internet uh, to interesting things we talk about in the show so you can learn more about Canadian theater uh, and that uh, pretty much is a running commentary there on the show on the show notes so go check that out at the titleblock.com all right well that's all the stuff I have to talk to you about right now um, enjoy the show uh, here's my interview with Fina McDonald Fina McDonald is the co-owner of the Rapids Choice Prop Shop in Toronto, Ontario, and has had a long and varied career in Canadian theatre as an actor and builder with her props featured in the original Canadian production of Phantom of the Opera and many other productions from Queen Street to Broadway. Fina, welcome to the title block. Thank you. Awesome. Fina is also the recent winner of the Silver Ticket Award from the Dora Maven Moore Awards here in Toronto, so we'll talk about that a bit later. Okay. But first... Tell me how you started in theater. What was your first experience, and how did you decide to do this as a career? Mm, when I was five, I grew up in Winnipeg, and when I was five, my parents decided that it would be a good thing if they exposed me to a little culture. So they took me to Rainbow Stage, which is a summer theater program, and they do fabulous musicals. 
Um, and then that went very well. So they thought when I was six that they would start taking me to plays at the Manitoba Theater Center. And so from the time I was six till the time I moved away from home at 17, I saw, I think, every production done at Rainbow Stage and at MTC, which gave me an incredible theatrical education. Just amazing. Everything from Brecht to The Music Man. Very cool. And what uh, I, uh, dates are important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what year was this? When were you? When I was, was this? born in 1952, so I was five in 1957 and six in 1958. So, very close to the forming of both those theater companies. Mm, that's incredible. I didn't. I didn't realize they went back that far. That's pretty yeah. incredible. Yeah. And Rainbow Stage is outside. Yeah. Um, and we, I talked to Ed Coton in, in February about oh, his cool. experience out there. We had a great conversation about his life at um, out in Winnipeg, designing there. Um, what, was there anything, since that was your first experience, what was what, what did you find special about the theater? Or did you find exciting about going to Rainbow Stage? Was it the musical? It was magic. Model? It yeah. was, I, I got to see a whole other world very differently than I saw when I read about it, because I taught myself to read when I was like three or four. Um, so it was all there. The landscape, the clothes, the people were right there in front of you. That's incredible. And uh, to have that experience at MTC and go to see every production during that period yeah. must have been yeah. incredible. That's amazing. <laughs> was there anything that stands out as something you remember as a like a really singular experience when you were at, uh, when you were seeing stuff at MTC? Oh at wow, uh, Galileo, uh, Mother Courage, um, Gaslight scared the pants off me uh the four poster um oh tons of them i could uh, almost everything right if i think a little harder you'll get a long long <laughs> long list and did you start uh, you you did some early training at mtc as well is that right yeah the um the manitoba theater center one easter break we didn't have march break at that point it was just easter had uh, an open house at the theater and The Caretaker, another great show, was what was on stage. And the cast of The Caretaker came out and talked to this audience of kids. And I would have been about 13, I think, at the time. Um, and the stage manager talked a little bit. And I think even the designer talked a little bit. And I had an epiphany. And that was that I could do this really wonderful, magical thing that I had been watching other people do. And uh, at the end of the kind of little performance that they had done, they pitched the theater school, and I signed up. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And how long did you do the theater school at MTC? Uh, I did it from the time I was 14 to 17, so three three years. And and who was there as uh, as a mentor, and what kind of... What kind of experiences did you have? Uh, fantastic experiences. They, there was a staff, um, David Barnett, who then went to uh, the University of Alberta, um, David Latham, uh, and then they had uh, people who were doing shows come over, actors come over. So there was a woman, I cannot remember her name, but she was in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And she came over and for, I think, four or six weeks, she gave us uh, classes in period dancing. Uh, Powis Thomas, who later went to BC uh, to form a theater school there, came. He was at 
MTC quite a lot, so we often had him as an acting instructor. Uh, so just all kinds of people we were exposed to. We learned to fence. Um, you know, we learned to observe. We learned to do scene work. We learned to improvise. Yeah. All very, all very important. Yeah. Um, now you started out as an actor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, at seventeen, what happened? Did you go to theater? Did you go to university, or how did you continue this career? Well, at seventeen, uh, I had we went on tour for the theater school and toured all through rural Manitoba. Uh, my boyfriend was also on the tour, and I was pregnant by the end of it. So I got married, went to move to Montreal, where my then husband was uh, finishing his stint at the National Theatre School. And then, uh, in the midst of the FLQ crisis, we thought maybe we should get out of Montreal. <laughs> so we came back home to Winnipeg and. Uh, my husband got a job at MTC, and so we stayed. And by the time Arwen, my daughter, was about five months old, I had reconnected with some of my theater school friends, and we formed a theater company. We got a Opportunities for Youth grant, and we also did a, a pitch to the Manitoba Cultural people and uh, we toured elementary schools and we had a um, performance space outdoors during the summer of 1972 I think yeah um, and did did shows which is actually no sorry 1971 which is where I met Paul Thompson because he came to see our show and remembered me because I was performing, uh, we were doing the witch's scene for Macbeth, and I had Arwen on my hip, and he was struck by the fact that a witch had a baby. (laughs) That would be a Paul Thompson thing to recognize. How can I work that into a show? That sounds great. Yeah. And from there, he invited you to go to the farm show, is that right? Yeah, about a year later, um, I lived in a house with a bunch of other people, and we had a room to rent, and I was working in the costume department at MTC, learning how to sew and cut costumes. Uh, we rented uh, a room to a gent who was performing at MTC, and then he went, came back to Toronto where he lived uh, to do a show at Pass Mirai. Got to talking to Paul. Paul realized that this guy knew me, and then asked me to come out and and then asked me to come out and do farm show. That's great. Uh, we're, I should mention that we're actually in the Rabbit's Trace shop, so there's a lot of traffic outside, <laughs> including ambulances. Uh, that's great. Now, what was the name of the company you started in, Manito- in Winnipeg? The Patchwork Players. The Patchwork Players. And what, was it all original work, or was it... Uh... It was uh, largely fairy tale based mm-hmm. So we had a patchwork cape, and we'd get the kids to choose patches. And depending on what patch you chose, that would determine the story you heard. So we generally did three stories and two songs. Great. That sounds awesome. Was and was it all a young company? You guys were in your early 20s or late teens, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. I think I... the oldest was 24. That's... No, 22. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. The fact that you guys got grants and stuff from Manitoba, that's awesome. Yeah. That's terrific. I love that kind of... That's, that's, that seems to be... Uh, I don't know about the American experience, but I have several friends who, uh, that, that sort of theatrical entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is an, uh, 
is a is a uh, common experience for a lot of people in their in Canada, right? Interesting. Uh, I certainly did it when I was in my teens. We started a company as well, so it was oh cool. Yeah, it was you know, and and it, the audacity of it. It's the in, best thing in the world. It's great. Eh? You know, like, what? what? Of course we're going to start. We're going to do our own work. We're going to tour. Why not, right? And now I would think, oh, God, I, that seems like it's such a risk. But when you're yeah. 18, what's a risk, it's right? It's the beauty of youth, man. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, now Paul Thompson gets in contact with you yeah. through this connection and uh, and says, come to Ontario. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, what did you... I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't okay. A big deal. I was 20. I was ready to go somewhere else. Yeah. And uh, what, uh, tell me about the experience of traveling here and, and getting established. He he, uh, uh, he invited you to work specifically on the farm show. Yeah. Right? Uh, what was that like when you did you know what you were getting into? No, not a clue. No way. Eh? So what, what was it like coming to Clinton, Ontario, to start the um, process? It was it was pretty pretty wild. Um, I just turned twenty, and. Everybody was older. Some of them were really old, like 37. I was really old. Um, Everybody had uh, much more experience than I. Um, Miles had actually gone to university to study theater. So I was a little bit intimidated. Not really interested in letting anybody know that, but a little intimidated. And then it was just amazing um, from being a prairie girl and being able to walk across the road and pick pears from a tree was incredible. And then meeting all of these amazing farmers with amazing stories and the generosity to share them with us. And watching Anne and Janet Amos and Miles Potter do their thing on stage. Um, it It was cool. It was beyond cool. So for those people who don't know, um, the Farm Show was a collaborative production, but it was based on interviews yeah. of farmers. So describe that experience. Was that something new that the company had, in, that Paul Thompson had kind of invented at that point? Or what was what was your experience talking to those people and how did they receive it? Um, well, to backtrack a little bit, I think that uh, Joan Littlewood in Britain started the process of, or was one of the first people to do the process of the actors coming together, uh, researching the subject matter of a show, and then putting together a play from what they had learned, what they improvised in uh, rehearsal and so on. And the first play I saw was at MTC um, called Oh, What a Lovely War, which came out of that workshop process. Um, I think it was just in the air. Mm-hmm. We had done something similar with Che Guevara when I was in theater school, and I think that kind of process was just out there. Paul, I think, was on the crest of the wave that began to expose Canadians to themselves and uh, ordinary Canadians to themselves. So that was exciting and a little weird. It was a little weird walking into the homes of grown-ups and uh, asking them questions about themselves and trying to remember it and watching them for their physical mannerisms and then taking it back into rehearsal and presenting it to everyone else. And in some instances, there were commonalities and 
so those commonalities, sometimes we pooled all of them together and made up a scene that would incorporate something that obviously happened to everybody, but there wasn't a standout story amongst the people that we'd spoken to. And how long did the process of research and, and rehearsal take? Was it months or weeks? or? Uh, I th- think we were there for six weeks. And, and where did the funding come from? Did you guys have grants or did you guys just strike I have on no this? idea. They gave me a very small paycheck and, you know, that was it. I yeah. have no idea where the money came from. <laughs> it's a mystery to me too. We'll have to find out. Um, well, that's great. And I just want to mention, I just want to go through the names too. Paul Thompson, Janet Amos, mm-hmm. Anne Angland, we mm-hmm. spoke about her. David Fox as yeah. well, right? Um, Al Jones. Yeah, and Miles Potter. And Miles Potter. Yeah. Um, Al Jones is the one name that I don't know, probably because I'm ignorant. He left um, the show uh, when we were going to bring it back to Toronto. Mm -hmm. I think he hadn't enjoyed the process, and I don't know now if he thought it was a valuable thing or not. But anyway, he left the show, and I think uh, a few years afterwards left theatre. All right. Uh, And uh, you performed it in Clinton first? Yeah. We performed it in Ray Bird's Barn. (laughs) Where, 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 was, where is that in Clinton? Is that just a... Uh, I think it's Rural Route 3. It's uh, about a 15 to 20 minute drive out of Clinton. So a working farm? Yeah. Yeah. And how was that experience? Was it well received by the locals? I think it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> uh, the barn was packed. We'd uh, put up hay bales. Uh, sort of bleachers made out of hay bales. And I think we had maybe expected that maybe 20 or 30 people would come. Um, And when we peeked into the barn about 15 minutes before the show was to start, it was packed to and above the rafters, like kids were sitting on the rafters. And it all, I think it occurred to all of us pretty much simultaneously that we were about to step in front of real people that we talked to who had told us secrets and we were about to broadcast those secrets to their family and their families and their neighbors. And uh, I didn't know whether we were going to be stoned to death <laughs> or, or warmly received. Wow. So stepping out was incredible. Yeah. And then you brought it to Toronto. Yes. Uh, and you said that before that you had, uh, you had added the names back in. Yeah. When you came to Toronto. Were they the real names, the people you spoke to? or yeah. was it? Yeah. And how was it received here? Well, I'll tell you about Clinton first. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we start the play with little, little vignettes, five-minute, three-minute, two-minute speeches of different people. And as we went through, you could see, because it was daylight and there were no lights, so we could see the audience clearly. You could see people turning to one another and poking one another or pointing to the person down the row and everybody would sort of lean over and wink. And it, it was incredible. It was an incredible rush um, and quite delightful to, to see and people laughing at themselves and people, you know, crying for their neighbors. And it, it just was a fabulous, fabulous experience. And we did two afternoons, and the second afternoon there were even more people, and a lot of people came back. So that meant a great deal. Um, When we did it in Clinton, uh, one would start a speech 
and just go, and the audience would recognize you. We realized when we got into rehearsals for Toronto that no one knew these people, and the names were important, and it was important to be able to trace who the families were, which you couldn't do without names. So, uh, no, we used the real names. And you, and you said at some point you went on a, a tour of uh, auction barns yeah. with the show. Was that after Toronto or was that? Yeah, yeah, that was after Toronto. So Toronto we performed, I think, September, October. And then uh, we went out on the road in late March, early April and toured auction barns, cattle barns. There were generally cows and pigs sharing the dressing rooms with us. And we performed in the auction ring and that was fun. And uh, interesting to see how the differing farm communities responded. You know, find little fine details that one group would, you know, if they were cattle farmers primarily in that area, they would respond differently than the soybean farmers. Um, And then we finished with a a performance in Stratford. And the, excuse me, the, uh, I guess the town had rented the festival theater and we packed it out. And that was a really wonderful, wonderful thing. That's incredible. Yeah. And was there something that you, I mean, this is a pretty, these are your formidable years yeah. as a theater creator. Um, is there anything that you took from that experience that informs your career now? Like it seems oh, like that, that'd be. Yeah. Everything is collective. Mm-hmm. Everything is collective. You don't do anything on your own. And in point of fact, here at Rabbits, uh, with every, any given prop, there's usually four or five sets of hands that touch it before it leaves the shop. Uh, and we'll get to your, um, how Rabbits started in a second or how you got into props. But mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on homemade theater as well. This is something that, as I said before in the pre-interview, that I, I had not heard of before in Toronto. And this yeah. is probably important to talk about. Yeah. Um, how did... Uh, First of all, tell us about what homemade theater is or was, uh, how it got started, yeah. uh, and your original role in those in that company. Um, homemade theater was started in Toronto in the early 1970s. Uh, Phil Savath, Larry Mullen, Fred Mullen, and Barry Flatman. Uh, Barry is the only Canadian. Uh, the other three were American perhaps having uh, draft issues, and so perhaps choosing to come to Canada for that period of time. Um, They were, uh, I think, the craziest people I've ever met. Wonderful, wonderful, talented, uh, incredibly bright, um, interested in doing satire and wild, wild things. Um, They had a show, a TV show on CBC for a long time, uh, called Homemade TV. And I don't know a lot about their inception, but I started working with them and had a lot of fun. Uh, one of the major venues here in Toronto is uh, what we, I mean, we used to call it the Ice House. People still call it the Ice House occasionally, but it's the Queen's Key Theatre. Now it's called the, it's got some sponsor name or something. I don't know. It used to be the Du Maurier Theatre Centre, yep. and then it got changed after they got rid of those they changed the laws on cigarette <laughs> advertising <laughs> um you were in a production called dick Foren's holiday cruise yeah. there tell us about that because it sounded pretty incredible about how they well, ran well, it dick Foren's holiday cruise was preceded by dick Foren's disaster land uh which was done in a warehouse on duncan street 
um, and it involved building a plane in the warehouse, and uh, the audience or passengers on the plane were seated, brought in, seated. The stewardess did the obligatory instructions at the beginning, and then all kinds of wild and wacky disasters happened outside the windows of the plane. Um, and obviously audience participation factored into it. Uh, so the next foray was Dick Ferran's holiday cruise. Uh, we built a cruise ship in the ice house, and since it was a huge, empty, lovely space, we had you know quite a large-sized boat prow, um, and a lot of the action happened on deck. Uh, again, the passengers were welcomed, were brought onto the ship, and we set sail, so to speak, um, and interacted with the audience all the way through the show. Right. And this is when you were still acting. Yeah. Um, I think that the newspaper called you the leggy Fina McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what the, what the Globe and Mail called you. Oh, as I knock everything off the table. That's all right. Um, that's great. And that sounds, uh, it's incredible to me that, uh, you know, this is the arrogance of, of youth as well. You, I see site-specific um, and immersive experiences in mm -hmm. the last 10 or 15 years. You go, oh, it's so cutting edge. It's so different. And mm -mm. this is not something new. People have been mm -mm. doing this uh, for a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that theater, sh that's what theater should be doing a lot of the time. Like yeah. that seems to be something special that you can't get anywhere else, yeah. right? Not in film or, or television or YouTube or anything like that. Um, and the, tell us about the Ice House, because you were there before the renovation. It was spectacularly beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how high the ceiling is, but it's enormous. It must be four or five stories high. And uh, so it's brick all the way up, and then the ceiling, and it's a, it was a huge, beautiful, empty space. Um, very inspirational, very unlike anything that I've ever experienced since. Do you remember how it became a theater venue? Was it just abandoned for so many years that or or not or unused it's something yeah, went, un oh. unused fell out of use um and i think with the ferment that was happening in theater in toronto and yeah probably worldwide but certainly in toronto lots of new companies forming lots of you know you seek out performance spaces um and homemade theater was really tuned into finding unusual places to perform and that was these are this is in the late seventies, right? Yeah, the, that's right. The uh, holiday cruise occurred in nineteen seventy eight or something yeah. like that, I think. And what happened to the company? It just sort of dissolved, or they everyone moved on. Yeah, everybody. I think uh, Fred uh, is a musician, and I think wanted to focus more on his music career. Um, people got married, people had babies, people moved to be where their loved ones were. Um, so it, you know, I think it reached its its natural finish and. Moved on. People moved on. And now, uh, just tell, give us a list of the people you can remember who were designers on those experiences. Remember the people who did the Disaster Land? Uh, disaster Land would have been Bill Fleming, and I believe he did Holiday Cruise as well. Mm -hmm. And designed the whole thing? Yep. Okay. And uh, any lighting designers? There must have been. I can only imagine now the Ice House is a quite pleasant place to yep. light in because there's yep. so many different choices you can make back then with a big empty box it tends to be a bit of a challenge to get <laughs> lighting and or sound up there into those big reaches right uh there was a big moon puppet um and 
uh, we went up in a lift and hung it from the rafters. And uh, at one point, because I, a lot of my acting I, career, I tended to do other things as well. So I had helped build the moon puppet and went up on the scaffolding to do some paint touch-ups and some of the rigging had come loose. So, uh, yeah, it was on the rafters and I think a lot of the lighting pipes were hung from the rafters as well. That's incredible. I love the idea of a moon puppet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now we get into your into your prop career. How did you find your way into props? Did you do some original training or was it something you just stumbled upon? Or um, I went to the BAMP School of Fine Art for a summer program in 1967 and uh, it was a great program. It was, I think, primarily acting-based but uh, wanted to give the students a bit of an insight into all aspects of theater. So they taught us how to canvas a flat and how to do a Dutchman, which nobody right. even knows anymore. Nobody knows Dutchman nope. anymore exactly. Um, <laughs> and as as part of that, um, they taught us. You know, we we built props for the musical and the opera that were done by the school, and then toured Alberta and came back. And uh, I guess I had something that people thought was interesting because I went on tour with both those shows as the sort of running props person. Mm -hmm. So that was my, you know, kind of biggest entree into the world of props. And then the rest of the time, if you're working particularly as an actor in theater, you have to do other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I made costumes, I ran follow spots, I did box office, uh, I did props, I built puppets, I worked for the Canadian Puppet Festivals for two years. Um, again, not steadily, but that certainly gave me some skills that I hadn't had before. And what was your first, uh, when did you get hired to be a full-time props person? What was that? Um, that was at Young People's Theatre. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, Astor Jansen had hired me to build puppets for the Royal Winnipeg Ballet for production of the Firebird, and she had secured the prop shop at Young People's Theatre for the work to be done in. So I spent the summer building puppets in that shop and sort of got to know some of the people who were around for the summer and got to know the administrative staff and uh, finished the puppets. They went to Winnipeg. That was great. Uh, and about three months later, YPT called me and said, hey, um, we're short a props person. Do you want to come and be head of props? N not really having the experience to do that job, but it was a job and I knew that I would enjoy it. Uh, and they figured I was a props person because I'd been in the prop shop, right. which means you're a prop person, right? <laughs> So uh, that was my start at YPT, and that was in 1982. Mm -hmm. And how did you how did you feel about showing up at your first day? I mean, you had built puppets, but you didn't have sort of standard apprenticeship at any large prop shop. Did you have to? Well, do a I was bunch of I was makeup? I, I was familiar with the shop, mm -hmm. which helped, um, and I was familiar with some of the people, and that helped. And I figured I could just figure the rest out as we went along, which is kind of what I did. Yeah. That's awesome. And what were the first shows you built there? Do you remember anything that you'd worked on? Uh, Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. I remember that I built some uh, beautiful goblets and discovered that sometimes materials interact with each other in unpleasant ways. <laughs> 
How how so? <laughs> well, uh, I thought that you know, fortunately, the props person who had been there previously had there were a lot of materials in the shop. So I looked around and I thought, oh, here's some blue styrofoam. I can carve the shape of the goblet out of it, and here's some uh, copper tubing. I can make a nice twisty shape. Mary Kerr was the designer for that, a nice twisty shape, and then make a base out of plywood. Um, and the first uh, set of goblets I made, I then covered with gesso and sanded it on, over the styrofoam, so I got a nice smooth finish. Um, I ran out of gesso, went got some more, um, did the next set of six goblets, set them aside to dry, came in in the morning, picked one up, and the whole thing shattered in my hand. <laughs> because there was a solvent in the second pot of gesso. I didn't, they weren't the same, and I didn't know enough to realize that you probably should try and match. Right. So there was a solvent in that gesso, and overnight uh, it had skinned, so that nice solvent had a chance to eat away all of the styrofoam. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, quite disappointing to come in and have to redo all that work as yeah. well, right? Um, that's that's terrific. Now, um, you made a decision. I mean, that basically started you on your road to being a full-time props yeah. person, right? Yeah. Um, how did you get, how did uh, Rabbit's Choice come about? Because working for a, for working for a small, well, not a small company, but working in a shop that somebody else owns and making your own. We wanted business. windows. Right? <laughs> yes, there are no <laughs> windows in the prop shop at YPT, are there? No. No. Uh, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Who's your, your business partner is? Don McGoldrick. Don McGoldrick. And how did you guys meet? And come Well, he was the scenic carpenter at, at YPT. Oh, there you go. That's Yeah, convenient. so we co obviously collaborated on a lot of stuff while we were there. Um, and YPT had been considering and talking to everybody in the building about um, renting or purchasing a production facility so that the shops could be bigger and so that we could have windows and um, just everything would be more efficient and better. And I, amongst probably everybody else in the basement, which is way below ground level, uh, were really looking forward to the windows. And I don't know exactly what happened, but um, as it transpired, there was no money or cease to be enough money to do that. So the, the dream of being able to look at the sky in the morning or at night or in the afternoon went away. Um, and we, Don and I talked about it, and he, had, he then left YPT and went on to work with other people. And we continued to talk, and after a while we thought, well, maybe we could just start our own company because, you know, there were a number of small theater companies in Toronto that didn't have props people on staff. So we figured there was probably a market and YPT said, yeah, we'll stick with you for at least a year and see how it works out. And that was the beginning. All right, we're taking just a little bit of a break here. Uh, just to remind you again to go to patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast and click on become a patron uh, so you can support the show and make sure we get these out on time to you and, uh, and get more episodes out. You'll also be supporting things like trips across the country to visit with designers in person in places other than Toronto uh, and supporting special interest podcasts uh, like the 
uh, audience show we did in the spring uh, and the CITT visit I did last year when we had a discussion about projection design. So please go to patreon.com forward slash the Total Block Podcast. Click on Become a Patron and give us your support. Uh, and we'll continue to get these episodes out. Don't worry, they'll remain uh, free for everybody. Uh, but you'll be doing, uh, doing me a great service and, and helping us get this uh, podcast out to everyone uh, on time and, and try to get uh, as many episodes out as we can uh, every month. So thank you very much for your support. And now back to our conversation with Fina and McDonald. And was your shop always here on Claremont? Yes. It was, eh? Yeah. So right from the beginning. What was the first uh, big show you guys worked on, or first show for that matter? I mean, YPT was your first client? Yeah. Yeah. So we did a season with them. Mm -hmm. Um, We were just finishing off uh, our production of Damn Yankees at uh, uh, the Royal Alexandra when we moved into the shop in July of 1988. And then got rolling with the YPT season and got rolling with Phantom of the Opera. Right. That seems to be... Now, you had, you'd had been building props for quite some yeah. time, and Don had lots of experience as well. So yeah. it doesn't seem too surprising you would get contracted out to do Phantom. But it does seem like a bit of a risk for them maybe to take to hire somebody local who had been just recently established as their own company or well um is that surprising maybe that's not surprising i I think we're all arrogant when we're younger yeah (laughs) (laughs) um patrick clark was the design associate on the show and i don't know if you know how this works but there's you with the big shows generally there's a big the big designer um and then they have an associate who uh does a lot of the drawings and does oversees a lot of the shop work and then there's the next tier down is the local design assistant. So in every city that the show, the big shows are produced, there will be somebody local who oversees whatever is being built there. Um, so I had worked with Patrick at Theater Plus. He'd done a number of shows at Theater Plus, and I, you know, designed he designed them, and I made the stuff. So we were familiar with each other, and he actually recommended us for the job. And there's uh, elements of finance, uh, there's elements of national and personal pride and uh, ego, and I think all of those things came into play when Garth hired us. That's incredible. And you guys made it, built the production at the Pantages, then it was the Pantages, now yeah. it's the yeah. Ed Mervis Theatre, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we built the Canadian tour. And then you built the tour. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the experience of building the original show, first of all. How was, was it something that was, um, that you had to innovate a lot on? Or was there, were all the ideas already sort of fleshed out enough that you could just follow uh, the recipe from New York? Uh, well, it was a recipe from London. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff, uh, there was tons of leeway. Uh, there were photographs, but... Not much else. Um, some of the stuff, like the throne, had dimensioned drawings, but no um, no real indication of how the mechanism that makes the phantom vanish should work. Uh, they were very generous. Jonathan Allen was the British design associate, and he was very generous with us in terms of talking stuff through and allowing us a bit of rain, free rain to to do what we wanted and 
my business partner, Don, is very good at mechanical, interesting widget things. Uh, so he and I pooled our resources. We went to London. We watched the show. We did a backstage tour and looked at as much stuff as we could and then came home and continued, sort of started the build. Um, there was a ton of stuff. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> um, we worked a lot. There's a, I have a picture of Don in the welding area, st st well, standing, but he's face down on the welding bench sleeping. <laughs> we worked very, very long days um, just trying to get it all done and also to figure out how to do it. What were some particularly challenging pieces in that show? Like, What were the things that you found the most uh, interesting or, or challenging besides the mechanism, I guess, of the throne? Um, well, just the, just the throne itself to try and um, figure out what the problems were and how to make them better. Um, we The throne has, uh, on the back of the seat, there are two pillars on either side of the upholstered backrest. And I guess in previous productions, they'd taken little bits of stuff and glued them on to either sono tube, cardboard tubing, or, or wooden, t wooden columns. And uh, one of the complaints that the uh, design associate had was that these were always breaking and shipping off. And indeed, we, the first run, we tried that and did a few things differently. And, you know, the roses chipped off, the things curled. Um, it looked like terrible uh, once it had been on stage for a little while. So we then made a, uh, a mold of that pattern and cast it in rubber latex, which held beautifully, held up beautifully. Because that's something we always try and do is to make the props last. Right. I don't want to see them back in the shop in a month and a half. <laughs> they're done. They're gone. <laughs> I can imagine that's important. Yeah. Um, now, uh, what, what about uh, transferring to the tour? Uh, you guys had to do some modifications because the tour deck, for example, was only seven or eight inches deep. It wasn't yeah, that's deep. right. So tell me about the candles and how that was attacked. Was, was attack. Because the candles basically... I can't imagine anybody listening to this has not seen Phantom, but you never know. There are a bunch of candles that come up from the floor um, during the sewer boat scene, right? And yes. how was that? How was that attacked? Don just walked into the studio. <laughs> He's making faces at us because we're talking for so long. That's right. Um, so in the uh, in the production at the Pantages, of course, there's a, a trap room. There's tons of room under the deck, so. Uh, the candles range in length from, I think, about eight inches to just under three feet. And they were solid tubes of Teflon with little lights in the top, and they went onto a lift and just came up and down. Obviously, you, you can't do that in six inches of space. Um, so we talked about it a bunch, and it became obvious that where there was space was laterally rather than horizontally, so or rather than vertically, rather. And uh, so we thought about it again, and we figured that if we could make a spring or have a spring made, like a garage door spring, tightly wound, covered in Teflon to make it white, and could somehow drive that and make it turn and come up out of the stage, then we could get the whole candle 
out of the deck as the design required. So we bought a whole bunch of windshield wiper motors. Uh, We had some cogs custom made. We had garage door springs made. We had little boxes, little metal boxes made, because there were 150 of these things. It wasn't like you could just sort of whip it off on your own over the weekend. And uh, then we turned little Teflon tops so that when the light was on, you got that glow, that candle glow through the wax, through the Teflon. Um, And put them all together, and there was some trial and error, and we finally got them working. But it that was incredibly challenging and a lot of fun. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I remember doing the tour. I remember I was in theater school and I did the install in Kitchener. Right. And you would not believe how proud the touring crew was of the candles. Cool. When they came up, they were oh, like, look at these things. So cool. You can run into them. They're, they're, they don't break. It's incredible. <laughs> they were, they were, they remember them going on about this after we installed the deck. It was really. That's really neat <laughs> to hear. Incredible. That's very cool. All right. Now this was not, this was the first of the big shows, but yep. you've done a whole bunch of other Broadway stuff. Yeah. Um, not only things that were had originated in, or that were mounted in Toronto, but mm-hmm. that originated in Broadway and other places. Yeah. Uh, just give us a quick, like back of the envelope you know, list, like you've worked on Saigon. Yeah, we worked on Miss Saigon and Crazy for You here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did Lion King Mm -hmm. here. Um, And then for Broadway, we've done The Producers, Spamalot, Young Frankenstein, Kiss Me Kate, um, Lion King, uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, can't remember anymore. There are lots. That's a lot, yeah. There are lots. And, and you now, do you guys get uh, still get a lot of work from New yeah. York? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're obviously a shop that they trust, yeah, and can talk to. Yeah, that's important. Um, the what about locally? Do you remember Lucky Strike? Yeah. Um, you were the designer, prop and costume designer on Lucky Strike, or the the designer? Yeah. yeah. Um, I the only reason I bring it up is because um. um which version? Jim and I. The remount. Okay. Did you do the original one as well? Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. Awesome. Because um, Jim worked on that as well, the yeah. original, I think. Yeah. Uh, what was your role in the original production? Um, well, I did props and costumes. Mm-hmm. So same thing. So and this was thing. in the late 70s, early 80s? Uh, yeah. It would be, Arwen was nine when we were at the caravan, so it would be 1979. Right. Um, what was your experience on that production? It seemed like a pretty important one. Locally, anyways. Um, well, Harant is a madman, mm-hmm. and he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, well, actually, I'd done a show with him. I had acted in two shows for him, so I knew he was a madman. Um, this is Harant Alianak, and he wrote the blues, which I did. The I was in the original cast for, so I I knew what I was getting into. Um, but it was great. It was great to work with those people and, uh, try and find the texture of the design, um, from Jim's rough sketches of the stage and also to figure out the problems with the costumes and make them look and function the way they needed to. Uh, And how was the, how was the remount? Was it much, uh, much the same craziness or was it, uh, was it a strict... Was there any redesign you had to do or rethinking? No, it was, or? It was, it was very much what it had been. Mm-hmm. Um, different performers, but very much what it had been. Mm-hmm. And what I love about Harant's work is that 
um, usually there's very loud music playing and everything is choreographed and there's dialogue, but rarely do you get to hear what's being said. You only know that people are shouting and every once in a while there's a, a silence or a lessening of sound and you hear a key phrase. So it's really interesting to try and translate some of that energy into the props and the costumes. Um, so the best I could do was to look up things in Arabic. And so on the matchbook, the iconic matchbook from Lucky Strike, uh, I made a cover and wrote the word match in Arabic script on the cover. All the bales were labeled bales. All the barrels were labeled barrel. All the crates were labeled crate, um, which struck me as being intriguing, uh, visually beautiful because the script is lovely. And uh, later when the show was running, um, I heard that a number of people who spoke Arabic had seen the show and were so pleased and so much enjoyed having things labeled the way they had been. Um, they found it both, you know, humorous and, and attractive. Yeah. So That's great. All right, so let's talk about uh, your process as a props builder um, and designer for that matter. Um, I, I have not, I'm a lighting designer, I'm not a set or costume designer, and I'm not, uh, I don't really know about that relationship between designers and builders in the prop world especially um is it different for every show or is there a, a certain number of steps you like to take that are the minimum standard by which you have to get something built it generally starts with a phone call um and then it 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 varies from show to show uh sometimes we get a list sometimes we discuss everything over the phone Sometimes we get drawings. Sometimes we get reference photos. Um, we always ask when things are due. Because <laughs> um, that's sometimes the most important question. Uh, and then it's a lot of conversation with the designer. Um, typically, I ask if something gets danced on. And often I remember to ask how many people will be dancing on it. <laughs> uh, and I often ask how things feel, what, the, what sort of a feeling I should get off the object that we're being asked to produce. Because that often informs me more than anything else. And is that the perspective from the actor who's manipulating the prop or from the audience or both? Um, mainly from the designer. Okay. What, what do they... Is this supposed to convey uh, a sense of luxury? Is this supposed to convey a sense of ickiness and filthiness? Is it supposed to be, does it feel ramshackle and about to fall apart? Does it feel heavy and precious? That reminds me of uh, the story you told me about the uh, puppet um, Alma Mahler's yes. lover yes. and the puppet they had built of her. Yes. Tell me about that story again. Um, so this was a... A play uh, done by Severn Thompson, uh, Renul, Rahul Beneja, and Ida Holmes about uh, Oscar Kokoschka, who was a painter. 
and he had an affair with Alma Mahler. She left to go on to her next lover, um, but he had become obsessed with her. So he commissioned a doll maker in Berlin to make a replica of Alma. And there's this incredible correspondence that was maintained um, between the two of them with him talking about the kind of texture of fabric that he wanted on the doll and what, what color of wine should be used to, you know, tint the her nipples and very, very detailed. And his excuse was that he was ma- doing a painting of her and she wasn't around and he needed somebody to stand in for her. Um, and the doll was finally delivered. Uh, he and the doll maker had a falling out and um, he bought her dresses. He sat her at the head of his dinner table when they had company. He took her to the opera. And then uh, one night his in Paris, his neighbors phoned the police to say that there was a naked body of a woman lying in the snow behind Kokoschka's house. And it was the doll. <clears throat> so Severn and I, uh, Severn, whom I've known since I, she was one, because she was around for the farm show, um, and this is Paul Thompson's daughter, daughter, and yeah. England's daughter. Yeah. yeah. So Severn and I, Severn came to me, and we talked about the doll and uh, how it was going to be used and what feeling they wanted to have from it. So I built the doll and spent a lot of time waiting her and um, jointing her so that you know if you sat her down she'd sit. Mm-hmm. If you put her hand on something, the hand would stay where it was put. And tell me about the joints again. So was this uh, did 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 your experience in puppetry? Uh, inform yeah. the jointing? Yeah. yeah. And then were they very much large-scale versions of those kind of uh, joints? Or sort of, yeah. Of innovation? Yeah, very, very similar, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Severn and I worked a little bit on the doll manipulation so that um, she could make it look as if it lived. Mm-hmm. And actually, indeed, there there was a beautiful scene in the show where the doll is sitting in a chair Severn, who played the doll maker, comes and kneels beside her and puts her head on the doll's lap. And then the doll lifts her, her own arm and strokes Severn's hair. Uh, you couldn't see Severn doing the manipulation at all. And her father, the respected theater director, uh, thought it was somebody in a costume and wondered how Severn had managed to pick them up. So... Some some brilliant acting there. That, that's a testament, yeah, and and uh, testament to you, Bill. Yeah. Now tell me about this the uh, the covering as well. You said you were kind of surprised how the covering worked out of the actual doll. Yeah, the um, there are some existent photos of the actual doll, and from everything I could tell from the photos, and when you do the big shows, you get a lot of photos, so you learn how to look at them closely and figure out what's going on. It looked like the fabric on the doll was very heavy velvet, thick velvet, which made no sense to me. But I figured, well, the doll maker did that. I will try and find something that is similarly dense, that has a nice thick pile like this does. I couldn't find any velvet, but what I did find was uh, a fake fur that had a nice hand and was, was flexible and felt good. Still couldn't figure it out. I built my armature. I covered it in foam. Uh, I sewed a spandex cover on all of the fleshy parts so that I had a nice smooth shape. 
uh, and then I put the fake fur on. And the first time I stroked the fur into place on top of that arm, I understood why, I think, I understood why the doll maker chose velvet because the fur compressed slightly and it gave the same sensation that you get when you touch somebody's arm or leg and there's that just slight give. The fur did that. So I, I feel like I connected somehow with, with the woman who had originally built it. It reminds me, uh, how much do you have to rely on that kind of discovery to do your job? Um, it doesn't sound, you know, even when in, in costumes, for example, um, designers will go on buying trips. They'll maybe even have swatches of the specific fabric they want and they have a shape and they've got a period and they know like they can, they can express very specifically to the cutter what they want mm -hmm. the shape to be and exactly what and what they want to look like in props. It sounds like there's a lot left up, um, as far as decisions and, and structure goes to the builder and how, how does it feel to have to rely on, you know, starting from almost like almost no information about the structure? Certainly, mm -hmm. you'll have a picture, but you really have to rely on those kind of discoveries in the moment. Uh, and it must be a bit of a that to me that seems really risky to go. Oh, I have three weeks to build this. I hope that I figure <laughs> it out, right? Well, I think I think the uh, the thing is that if it's finished and usable. It, it's great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so meeting the deadline is the most important thing, right? Um, you know, uh, it's a process of discovery every time. You know, you, you have to get all this disparate information. I love to see set drawings. I love to see maquettes. Um, I love to read the script if I can. Um, I love to talk to somebody, whether it's a stage manager or the production props person in New York, about how things are being used and what the comments are in rehearsal um, and try to put all that together and shape it into a thing mm -hmm. that works. And if I know roughly what the style of the show is, I can make something that fits that style. And if I know how it's being used, then I can figure out how to make it. Uh, and this leads us to the next discussion about communicating with a designer. Uh, you've mentioned the things that the designer provides, but if you had to sort of outline what the ideal package you would get or the ideal uh, set of resources you require from the designer. Uh, is a drawing uh, uh, sort of the top of that or is it not always necessary? I mean, you, you said before that uh, to be earlier that you only receive drawings for half of the props that you build yeah. and the rest is all just resource materials. Yeah. So is there an ideal um, that people should strive for when they're communicating with, uh, with the props? Well, it, it's, it's a little difficult because it depends on, you know, if you've worked together before. Um, if you've worked together a lot, there's a language and you need less material. Um, it depends on how specifically the prop is being used or what specifically the prop must represent. Um, dimensions are always good. <laughs> That's really key. Um, and... Uh, a general feel for the whole show. Like, uh, as I said, it's good to see maquettes. It's good to see sketches of the set itself. So I know the world into which we're putting our things. Um, and it's also nice to have room. 
uh, room to play, room to discover, room to contribute to the design. So um, personally, and this isn't everybody, but personally, I like it when I've got a bit of room to play. That makes it more interesting, more challenging, more fun. So if you can hit that very fine balance, it's good. And how about the responsibility for decisions? I mean, the designer, I guess, has the final say, or even the director Mm -hmm. has the final say on whether something stays or goes. Um, But the designer, uh, often a theme, especially in costume design, um, arises, or a discussion I've had with friends, a theme arises where there seems to be an over-reliance on the craftsperson to make the kind of decisions that are typically in the designer's realm. But from what, I'm, from what you're telling me, you're happy to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, is that really designer-specific about how much you rely upon them? Or Oftentimes this conversation occurs in the context of, uh, you know, well, you've got a week to build 17 things, and now you're asking me to be... To design them as well. Well, that's not my job, and you're not paying specifically. You're not paying me to do that. I only have so much time. On the other hand, if you give me a week to build 17 things and the room to build them the way I want, mm-hmm. um, that allows me not to lose my mind. Right. You know, and you have to remember that um, on some of the Broadway shows, I, I never, I will never meet the designer. I will never ever even speak to the designer. Um, Sometimes I don't even speak to the design associate. I just speak to the production props person. Wow. And explain to me, sorry, explain to me that relationship. So you've got somebody who's uh, the head of props for that production. Yeah. Uh, who is contracting out a specific series of props to you. Yeah. Would there be a bunch of different shops building stuff? Yeah. There would be. So if you're doing a, if you're doing a Broadway show, typically there is a production props person. And that person is responsible for... Um, making all of the props happen. So they might go out and buy, or they might hire a buyer. Um, They may build some stuff themselves, or they may hire uh, an individual or a shop or a series of shops to build the things that are needed. They'll be in rehearsal every day. Um, And when the show gets on stage, they will be backstage running that show. So it's a very different system than we have here. Um, but they're, they're there all the time in rehearsal, looking at rehearsal with a props person's eye. So you get uh, very different information from them. Um, you know, they'll have already thought through what are going to be the problems. And if they're good, they'll let you suggest the, the solutions first and then put in their two cents worth. Um, but it's a really interesting you know, we did uh, we did Little Mermaid, and the props guy was fantastic, as most of them are. Uh, but I I never even met the designer. Mm-hmm. It all came through my props guy. That's a really that's a really different experience, right? Yeah. <laughs> From doing small to medium yeah. size, even just most Canadian theater, yeah. you've got such a direct line of communication. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, so let's move on to training. Um, you. Uh, trained, I mean, you, you trained on the job, yep. right? Right from the beginning yep. and figured out your own kind of solutions. Yeah. Um, given that all, all that experience, would you recommend that uh, process to somebody just starting out or is there a series of things you would recommend they train in first to in order to prepare them for that experience mm-hmm. or does it depend? 
I, I think it's always probably good to have some grounding and love of theater. Um, it's good to have a, an enthusiasm about research. Uh, it's good to have an eye for detail. Um, beyond that, I think it, it's probably really valuable to have a basic theatrical education. And by that, I mean uh, being backstage as a crew member, being on stage as an actor, um, knowing how to work basic tools, sewing machines, band saws, glue guns, scale rulers, um, all that kind of stuff. So I think if, uh, if, you have, if you go somewhere where you have the opportunity to be exposed to all those things, work in wardrobe a little bit, hang lights, run a lighting board, run a soundboard, understand what all of that means, um, I think you're in a good place. Uh, and tell me about your work with the BAMP Center on the competencies. Oh, that was really fun. Yeah. Um, the BAMP Center uh, was a few years ago putting together um, a list of competencies, a list of important skills for many of the areas of theater. And uh, they phoned me and a number of other people, a number of other props builders across Canada uh, and a designer and a stage manager. And they got us all to Banff for a weekend um, and locked us in a room and asked us questions about what we felt were the necessary skills that a props builder should at least be aware of, if not have as something they can use regularly in their arsenal. That seems to be, um, I, I now work as a paramedic and, uh, competencies are, especially in the medical field, they, they've been a long time. They've been a part of that field for a long time, but there are a certain number of things that you have to have as yeah. a minimum requirement to enter that position. Uh, and to have that in theater, I don't, now I imagine that everyone had an idea of what those were when you're yeah. designing a theater training program, but to have some sort of national standard is that's a radical idea. It's great. <laughs> a, isn't it's it great. Yeah. <laughs> and little... everyone trained at the same level. Yeah. What? What? That's an incredible idea. It's a so, little scary. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's true. And do you think that that is given? What, what? Well, first of all, describe what came out of that experience. What was? What was the result of that discussion? Um, well, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was interesting to uh, hear everybody talk about the things that they thought were important, and realize that we all pretty much thought the same way. Um, it was interesting. The gentleman who was, uh, running the weekend was excellent. He was an excellent moderator, but, um, you know, we got into some really fine tuned conversations with him trying to explain the difference between, uh, putting metal, metallic paint on something and metallic leaf and making something out of the actual metal and all the nuances that go with that. Um, it, I think it was really instructional. It, it reinforced for me how much I don't know how to do uh, and how much I don't know, which was, you know, humbling, but most of life is. So, uh, and it was just great to get together with a bunch of other props people and talk about what we feel is important in terms of skill and knowledge. And what was the result? You before you were describing the difference between a carpenter, carpenter, a stage carpenter, or yeah. a shop carpenter, and a, and a and a scenic artist and a prop builder. What was the what was the result? <laughs> um, 
something that we're very smug about. I think the carpenters had uh, maybe a list of six or seven things in rather large print, and the scenic artists had a page of stuff in sort of medium-sized print, and we had almost three pages in very small print of things we need to do. That's incredible. Yeah. And so where does one start? I mean, uh, I mean, you're, you're a, a senior... Uh, nationally renowned, probably pop, prop builder, right? And you're here's here you're saying there's so many things you don't know. Yeah. Um, so somebody who's just starting off in the business is going to be like, is going to be at a loss to sort of they're going to have to make things up every time they approach. Um, y- yes, but that if we then go back to our earlier conversation about the daring do and arrogance of youth when you're young um, you figure that you know most of it you know and I think it's only as you become more experienced that you realize that you don't know most of it Um, I think just dive in just dive in and what qualities um, would you describe as the paragon of a props designer builder like what are the things you need to understand the most sense of humor mm-hmm. um curiosity uh a desire to learn a desire to experiment um interest in and enjoyment of research uh ability to work collaboratively and collectively um a, a strong ego but not an overriding ego because you're always interpreting someone else's vision. Um, it's not your own art. It's somebody else's art. It's a collective piece of art. So you can't get too precious about your own stuff. What was the rule about the first prop? Ever? Oh, um, we find that when we're building a show, the first prop we finish is usually the one that gets cut. Right. <laughs> So you have to choose which one. You don't want to choose the one that's going to take you the longest to build. No. To build first or no. the most intricate, no. weird thing, right? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, uh, just I want to touch on the last couple of things before yeah. we get to the silver ticket. I want to touch on this idea of a stewardship of specialized knowledge. Christina Pudibiak and I had the discussion about the loss generally uh, or a winnowing of, of expertise in in theatrical um craftsmanship mm-hmm. um how do you think that that's true do you think that we're losing information one and uh number two how do you do you think that we should strive to record that information or um is there a way we can get ahead of that loss and try to preserve it that's a tough one um i think I sometimes feel like theater is the last bastion of anybody knowing how to do anything. <laughs> right. Especially with the advent of 3D printers, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so much is mechanized and assembly line. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if there are very many people left in the world who can put a car together. Um, never mind a shoe or a crown. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think we should try and record, try and teach, try and pass on as much as we can. Um, I think it would be great, although I can't find anybody to do it, um, to have somewhere where we all could go to take master classes in whatever, 
You know, here's here's a week where we're all going to build stuff out of brass and glass. Uh, I know that Stratford, um, some of the alumni from Stratford um, Prop Shop do occasional courses, uh, but I'd love to see it more, more better supported and, and more organized. Uh, is there a central uh, text or, excuse me, for prop building or for... Not that, that I'm aware of, of. Yeah, not that I'm aware a of. A lot of the knowledge is passed on through, or most of it's passed on through apprenticeships yeah. and things like that, right? Yeah, and I, you know, I have a lot of books on, uh, you know, how to, how to embroider, how to cast in plastic, how to make wicker furniture, how to make a basket, how to, you know, make things. So all of those, how to upholster. Um, so certainly you can pass a lot of the craft on, and a lot of it exists still in written form, but not as a, a prop Bible per se, but as discrete um, disciplines and projects. Right. Okay, and then let's turn to um, the Silver Ticket. Now, the Silver Ticket uh, is an award given every year by the Dora Maver Moore Committee here in Toronto to a senior theater artist who has made a significant contribution um, to the community and, uh, it gives you basically, uh, access to all the theater shows in the, in the TAPA, uh, playbook, right? Like yep. anybody who's belongs, belongs to TAPA, you can go see the show for free, right? That's right. Two, so, two, two, two shows, tickets, two tickets, two, even. two tickets. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You're everyone's best friend now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now explain to me that experience, uh, and, uh, how you felt, first of all, finding out that you were going to be the recipient. Um, well, it started with a phone call, as everything does. Um, a gent from TAPA called to say that I had been nominated uh, by Malcolm Black for this award. And he said, you know, if you could send us some kind of resume so we have an idea of what you do, that'd be great. And um, no one ever gets it on the first try. So you won't be picking it up this year, but never mind. It's a great honor to have been nominated. Um, which made me cranky. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that was, that was exciting. That was, uh, you know, I thought, wow, what a, what a lovely gesture of Malcolm to do this. And uh, I dutifully put together sort of a CV that kind of indicated some of the stuff that I'd done um, and then wrote uh, an artist statement just talking about, I love theater, I love theater. I love theater. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, you know, I think it's important to teach people what I know and keep learning and keep engaging and make, make collective, collaborative art. Um, and that went away and there was nothing. So I figured, oh, well, that was lovely. Very cool. Uh, and then Yakoba called me to say that I had won it. And uh, I started to cry. Um, craftspeople in theater generally don't, aren't recognized. Um, and that's okay. We learn that really fast and, uh, you know, you, you bask in the reflected glory of how the show looks and, you know, how the, how the designer does and all of that stuff. So it was very, very moving and I felt like it was for everybody, you know, all of us that, Toil here and elsewhere, making props, making costumes, making sets. You know, an award for the craftspeople. Yeah, that's important. I think that uh, I didn't um, 
I don't know if people know who, I don't think people know who the nomination nominees are every year, but having attended the doors, we were, my whole section were just ecstatic (laughs) that you had won. That's so cool. Because of, I mean, obviously because of your body work, but also because of that idea of recognizing craftspeople as an important collaborator in the theater, Uh, especially with the recent Tony's sound design debacle they had down there. Um, And then the discussion that resulted of what's, you know, what's a theater artist and what do you consider a collaborator? And and I think uh, props is one of those things that, that people forget to acknowledge, yeah, uh, you know, often enough. Well, you just go to the prop store, yeah, right, and get it. Yeah. Well, so many small <laughs> theater now. I mean, who builds for a small production? You know, there's there's not really a lot of stuff that's built, especially from scratch. It's yeah. all most of it is found or bought or borrowed from yep. pre-existing shops, and so. Yeah, you go to places like Reb's Choice or Shadowland yeah. or, uh, or the Shaw or Stratford and go, oh my God, there's entire shops here building things from scratch. Yeah. I mean, you showed me a cabinet um, that someone sent you a picture of original, beautiful, I'm not sure what the period was. It's probably modern. It's a, yeah, it's Art Deco. Art Deco, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and then you just built it. You just built a, a, like a, a real version from the picture, yeah. a copy that looked incredible. Uh, it seems to me that kind of craftsmanship is... Uh, I mean, you can find somebody who's a furniture builder, and you can yeah. find somebody who's a metal worker, um, and you can find somebody who upholsters and somebody who builds puppets. But to find all of those things in one person, well, a couple, or of, a people. couple of people, yeah, right, is an incredible, uh, I think, incredible amount of talent. So well deserved. Well, is there any? <laughs> you're very welcome. Uh, is there anything else or advice you would have with people who are considering? Um, entering into the theater in general and specifically getting into uh, a crafts position in theater. What is it something that you should, you would highly recommend uh, or is it something that you recommend with caution? Well, I love it. So I would, you know, recommend it to anybody, but you know, the caveat is that it's uh, an uncertain lifestyle. It's not lucrative. Um, and you have to work. You have to work really hard. If you think that it's going to be easy and you'll gain accolades and, you know, retire in a $9 million mansion, probably not. That would be, you know, for the video game developers. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you so much. No problem. It's it fun. Artisan Fina McDonald speaking to me from the Reps Choice Prop Shop in July of 2015. Next time, set and costume designer Michael Gianfrancesco joins me from the Shop Festival. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good. The voiceover is by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the Block CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the Block Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like this show, support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you try to size your Dutchman. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>